Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. Uh, it is good to be with you this morning, Hope. It's always fun when we can gather together and worship and um, sit under God's word a little bit. I'm excited this morning to be able to continue our series, Faith in Action, where we are going through the book of James. I think this is an important book for the church, especially the church in America today, and that the book of James has a, a really relevant word to speak to the American church. Because as a whole and in general, I don't think we've been very good at living out our faith. And if we're honest about it, the culture, the world at large has noticed. According to research by the Barna Group, among people who are turned off by uh, evangelical Christians, 61% of them said that uh, evangelical Christians are hypocritical. About 36% of all U.S. adults, including Christian ones, all U.S. adults think that evangelical Christians are hypocritical. It's gotten to the point where a full 45% of atheists, agnostics, and religiously unaffiliated in America agree with the statement that Christianity is extremist. We worship a God whose greatest commandment is to love God and love others. And I think if we're honest, the world is noticing that we aren't always very good at it. And so I think James speaks irrelevant, even if it is a really challenging word for us. And that's going to be true of our passage this morning. We're reading from James chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. If you have Bibles or your phones or whatever, feel free to read along with me. Uh, James 2, starting with verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what good, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead." Whew. Uh, this passage has been one that's been really challenging for Protestants. And I think it's challenging because the message of it is, is in many ways relatively clear. I think the sort of thesis of this section is well uh, articulated in verse 17 where James says, so faith by itself, 
if it has no works, is dead. Now, last week, Craig uh, exhorted us really well, but one of the things he exhorted us to do was to attend to God's word. And so that's what I want to do this morning, attend to this passage. So I'm going to kind of take off my preacher hat a little bit and put on my Bible teacher hat and try to dive into what is going on in this passage. And I want to do that by exploring how this passage relates to three other things. I want to think about how does this passage relate to uh, writings in the New Testament by Paul. I want to think about how this passage relates to the teaching of Jesus, and then how this passage relates to us. So first of all, how does this passage relate to, to some of the things in the New Testament written by Paul? Christians throughout history have read this passage in James and thought that this seems to contradict a lot of stuff that we read in Paul. Uh, let me give you some examples. Uh, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul writes this. He says, We know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law because no one will be justified by the works of the law. So here, Paul says you're justified not by works of the law but through faith. But then in James 2, 25, or 24, he says a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the one who is righteous will live by faith. Uh, Galatians was the first letter that Paul wrote. He kind of expands these ideas and talks about them more in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 3, verse 30, 21, he says, Now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what law? By that of works? No but by the law of faith. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised on the ground of faith and the uncircumcised on the same faith. Again, this is a lot of reading. Bible teacher hat on. Keep with me. Uh, Ephesians 2, verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. So what's going on here? These, seems to be, these passages seem to be pretty much at odds, where Paul is saying, you're not saved by works, you are saved by faith and using the language of justification, and then James uses that same language of justification and says, you're justified by works and not by faith alone. I think there are two important considerations that we need to think about um, as we try to understand this relationship between James and Paul. First of all, we need to consider that they are discussing different deeds. James and Paul, when they talk about works, are talking about different 
works. They're talking about different things. Paul is discussing what he calls works of the law. Now, for those of us who are living 2,000 years later in a different time and culture, we hear works of the law, and I think what we probably think of is just anything the Old Testament, the law of God in the Old Testament says to do. But that's actually not what that phrase refers to in the context that Paul was writing. When Paul says works of the law, he's not talking about general obedience to the law. He's talking about those works of the law that are distinctly Jewish, what are sometimes called covenantal laws or Jewish identity markers. They are the works of the law that distinguished the Jewish people from all of the other people. So when Paul says works of the law, he's really primarily talking about three different things. He's talking about circumcision, he's talking about eating kosher, and he's talking about the particular ways that the Jewish people observed the Sabbath. So when Paul says works of the law, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about circumcision, keeping kosher, and observing the Sabbath, because those were the distinctive Jewish identity markers, the distinctive works of the law that set the Jewish people apart from um, from the other people in the world. So if we look at the context of those passages I just read from Paul, we see that he's talking about those things. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul is upset with this group of people who were, um, this group of Christians, Jewish Christians, who were um, eating with Gentiles who were uncircumcised, but then some other people came and they were like, oh no, we actually can't have fellowship with those people who are uncircumcised, and so they stopped having fellowship. Uh, the passage in Romans, at the end of it, Paul says, God will justify the circumcised on the ground of faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. That's the issue he's addressing. In Ephesians chapter 2, the second half of that chapter, Paul talks about how the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles has been broken in Christ. When, God is writing, when Paul is writing about works of the law, it's not about good works generally. It's about these specific Jewish identity markers. James, on the other hand, when he talks about works, isn't talking about those specific uh, works of the law. Instead, James is talking more generally about obedience to God and about compassion towards others. We see that James is talking about obedience in the passage we have this morning in uh, chapter 2, verse 21, he mentions Abraham, how Abraham was justified when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. The idea there is Abraham was obedient to God when God told him to do something. We also saw this last week when Craig preached on the passage in James 1 where James says, don't just listen to the word, but be a doer of the word. This idea of good works as obedience to God is uh, happens throughout the book of James. But James is also talking about compassion towards others. This passage begins with this hypothetical situation where you have a brother or sister who doesn't have clothes or food, and James says, you can't just say to them, you know, hey, be warm, and I, I hope you eat something. Right? That's meaningless. You need to actually give them some clothes or help them be fed. Um, that's the compassion that James is talking about. He uses the example of Rahab from uh, the Old Testament book of Joshua. Rahab was someone who hid spies so that they would stay safe from the, the government that was seeking them and sent them out a way away, sent them out a different way so that they wouldn't be pursued by their attackers. Um, 
James talks about compassion throughout his book. In chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is to care for orphans and widows in their distress. In the first half of James chapter 2, he talks about how important it is not to show favoritism to the rich over the poor. This idea of compassion is throughout the book. When James talks about works, he's talking about obedience to God and compassion. When Paul talks about works, he's talking about these Jewish identity markers. So as we think about James and Paul, we need to realize this. They're, they're discussing different deeds, but they are also directed towards different distortions. James and Paul are addressing different false teachings and different incorrect ways of thinking. For Paul, he is teaching against people who say that Gentiles need to become Jewish in order to be saved. See, we have to realize that the letters of Paul are actually the earliest Christian documents we have. They were written in the first 20, 30 years after Jesus. And in that time, the church was really struggling with this issue of the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. You have Jesus, who's this Jewish Messiah, but yet we believe that he comes and brings salvation not just to the Jewish people, but to all people. And so there was this big question on if Gentiles needed to become Jewish in order to receive salvation from Jesus. And so Paul is writing about that, and he's saying, no, if you're a Gentile, you are saved through faith in Christ. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to eat kosher. You don't need to do the Jewish Sabbath observances. You are saved through faith. You don't need to become, you don't need to go through Judaism. James, however, is teaching against a different false idea. And it's possible that James is teaching against people who have taken Paul's ideas too far. That's uncertain, but it's possible. James is teaching against this idea that Christians who have faith are exempt from doing anything else. James is teaching against a complacent Christianity that uses faith as an excuse to not be obedient to God and to not have compassion towards others. The biblical scholar Dale Allison says that what James is doing is more denial than affirmation. James isn't so much affirming that you have to do stuff to be saved. That's not what James is saying. James is denying that your faith exempts you from obedience to God and compassion towards others. Okay, hope that's helpful. This relationship between James and Paul has, one, has been one that has uh, it's really struggled. And it's, it's a very reasonable struggle. These texts are weird and difficult. But I want to move on to think about how James relates to the teachings of Jesus. And I want to do this because I think sometimes people read the book of James and thinks, think that James is the only one in the New Testament who talks this way. That James is the only one who, at least on the face of it, seems to give some sort of salvific importance to works. But throughout the book of James, there are tons of connections between what James teaches and what Jesus teaches. It seems like there's lots of places in James where he's referring to the teachings of Jesus. Uh, just one quick example that's not related to anything we're talking about. But in James chapter 2, verse 5, James says, 
Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom? In Matthew 5, 3, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Both of those passages talk about how the poor will inherit the kingdom. James referring to the teachings of Jesus. And so in our passage this morning, James is talking about how important works are, and Jesus in many cases, uses sort of similar language and talks about similar ideas. Let me give you two examples. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Let me repeat that. It's... It's an intense verse. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evil doers. In Matthew chapter 25, uh, there's this famous parable of the sheep and the goats where Jesus is describing the final judgment and how God will divide those who will be saved, the sheep, from those who will be damned, the goats. And in this parable, the distinguishing factor between the sheep and the goats is not faith. Faith is never mentioned in the parable. This is the distinguishing factor. Verse 34 of Matthew 25 Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. In this parable, the things that lead to salvation are... Um, feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, taking care of the sick, visiting the incarcerated. There is a repeated theme in the New Testament. It's not just in James that God does very much care about our actions and that how we act is incredibly important. And for us to deny that would be, would be being unfaithful to the text. We have to be honest about what it says, that these things are incredibly important, which leads us to the last thing. How does James relate to us? And this is really important because I, I don't, the point of this uh, passage is not you need to do a lot of stuff to be saved. I think it's more of this, that what we truly believe can be seen by how we act. What you truly believe will be seen by how you act. Sometimes we have this misconception about faith in our you know, modern scientific intellectual world that faith is uh, mentally checking off a series of propositions, right? That we write these statements of faith that have like nine sentences about what you believe. And if you can look at that and say, yeah, I think that's true, then that's what faith is. And that's only part of faith. 
True faith is a rich belief that deeply invades your heart and your soul. True faith is transforming. True faith is a deep foundational trust in God above all else. The modern philosophical theologian John Hick has said this, that recent investigations between the nature of belief have emphasized that there is a close connection between believing something to be the case and acting appropriately to something being the case. To be in a state of believing something is primarily to have a set of tendencies and liabilities and dispositions to act in ways appropriate to the truth of that thing. For a person to say that they believe X, it's not really conclusive. For they may find out in a moment of truth when for the first time circumstances require them to act on that truth that they don't really in fact believe that thing. Our actions alone reveal infallibly what we believe. Our actions alone reveal infallibly what we believe. Brothers and sisters, do our actions reveal that we believe in Jesus? What do your actions reveal about what you truly believe? Now, I want to counter uh, a sort of false understanding, I think, of what this passage says. I don't want you to leave this morning feeling a burden and a requirement to do a bunch more good works. Jesus says that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The point of this passage is not that we are burdened to do a lot more good works. The point of this passage is that in Christ we are empowered to do good works. We are empowered, we are not burdened. The message isn't you need to do all of these things to be saved. We are already saved. Christ has already done the work. Our salvation is not accomplished when we do something. Our salvation was accomplished 2,000 years ago when Christ lived and died and rose again. And when that happened in Jesus' death and resurrection, he defeated evil, he defeated death, he defeated sin. And he defeated them in a cosmic sense, but he also defeated them in you, and he defeated them in me. And I believe that this isn't, this isn't just rhetoric, but this is a true deep, mysterious reality that when we believe in Christ, we are joined with him in his death and resurrection so that you are actually set free from fear and evil and death and sin. You have been transformed by Christ. It's not just you need to work harder to do it. Jesus did it, and there is a mysterious reality in our souls working. God is changing us. 
So we no longer have to continue in the ways of fear and death and sin. You have been set free from slavery to sin, and you don't have to live in it any longer. But Christ himself lives in you and empowers you and strengthens you to live a life of obedience to God and compassion towards others. This is a really important shift in attitude. I don't want you to leave here thinking, oh my gosh, I need to do more to be saved. I want you to leave here thinking that Christ has set me free from sin. Christ is in me, empowering me to live a life of obedience to God and compassion to others. Friends, the work that God has done in us is truly incredible. And I think we often underestimate it. I think we often live with an attitude of defeat, where we are bound to continue in ways that are wrong or sinful, in ways that are unjust or evil. But Christ has conquered it. And Christ is in you always, empowering you to live a life for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful this morning for your mysterious, your rich, overwhelming, generous grace towards us. We thank you that you are a God who isn't distant, but you are a God who came among us, that you lived and died and rose again, that in your work you have defeated evil, you have defeated sin, that you have united us to yourself. God, I pray for all of us in this room that you will transform us by your spirit and your mighty power, that you will unite us to your death and resurrection, that your spirit will deeply invade our hearts and our souls and transform everything about who we are. God, may you make us people who are characterized by obedience to you and by compassion towards others. May we never underestimate the work that you have done in us, but may our lives of faith transform us, our families, our church, our community, and the city. God, give us faith to trust that you are good and that you are great, that your love never fails, that you are with us always. In all of these things, God, we offer ourselves to you, recognizing that we do believe, but may you help our unbelief so that our lives may be entirely for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.